Yeah, can I just add my welcome to you if you're here for the first time? I'm Phil, I'm part of the team here at the church and we are in a series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, just wave at me if you've been to any of those messages so far. Wave at me if you've been reading Ephesians at home. Wave at me if you've memorised Ephesians 1 yet. Okay, that's all right, there's still time, there's still time. Um, we're going to be today looking at Ephesians chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, you might like to turn there and uh, we'll be reading some verses in just a moment. Uh, just to say, last couple of weekends, uh, I've had the privilege of being uh, overseas with some churches that we serve as a church uh, in both Spain uh, and in Paris in France. Here's just a couple of photographs. We've got uh, the, the very debonair PK strutting his stuff there, preaching in Spain. I could have showed you a picture of us around the pool with the sun shining and 30 degree heat, but I thought that would create disunity in the church. So, so inside, instead, that's an inside picture of Spain. And then on the other side here, uh, we've got us praying in uh, my friend Jan into eldership in Paris as a church we're partnering with there. Uh, Paris is the third most influential city in the whole world. So if you want to reach Europe, in fact, if you want to reach the world, you've got to reach Paris. So uh, it's amazing to see what God's doing in that city uh, as we partner together. Interestingly, actually, they meet in a building just down from the Louvre in uh, Paris and uh, a guy uh, from that church was in the UK many years ago before they had a place to meet. And an English person uh, in a prayer meeting got a picture of the building that God was going to give them in Paris. And so he drew the picture on a piece of paper and went and gave it to my friend who looked at the building and recognised it as this building near the Louvre, which is now where they've been meeting in the last eight years. So uh, it's amazing what God's doing right across Europe. And uh, so today we're, we're in Ephesians chapter 4. And before we get there, uh, my summer included going to my cousin's wedding in Carlisle. Now, I love weddings. Weddings are always a great family occasion, always a great sense of celebration. The clan's kind of coming together. Uh, This is my cousin, Matt, here. And there's one moment in every single wedding ceremony that is my favourite moment. And it's not the cake, it's not the confetti, it's definitely not the speeches, it's not the worship time, it's none of those things. My favourite moment in every single wedding ceremony is the moment where the husband and wife have just exchanged their vows and then the minister makes a proclamation. What God has joined together, let no one separate. I love that moment. That moment makes me want to leap out of my seat and high five someone near me and celebrate. And you know, when you're in a traditional wedding, that's just not proper. But inside I'm like, yeah! Because there's something about that moment that says more than just a blessing on that particular couple, it says something about how God views his church. You understand that marriage is a picture of a greater reality. The fact that Christ is now being joined to his people, the church, forever. And that over us, the Father says, what I have joined together, let nobody separate. Do you understand in the heart of the Father, there is this burning passion for our oneness, our unity, our connection. The fact that we are not some organisation of random disparate people, but we are a family saved by one Father. I'm just going to keep speaking until your happiness reaches your faces. Okay. You have one saviour. You're from all sorts of different backgrounds and tribes and colours and experiences and academic qualifications and, and jobs. But here's the thing. You and I have one father. We are united by him. And God cares about our togetherness. He cares about our unity. And this passage that we're looking at today is all about the oneness that we have in Christ, that he has made us to be a united people. And if there's anything that demonstrates unity, it's a gift day. I love gift days. 
Gift days are brilliant. Gift days are the, the day to turn up early to church and get the best seat. Why? Because there's something about us coming together and say, I'm sowing what I have for a bigger purpose that says we are one family that can do more together than we can apart. You know, nothing shows how united a church is by what happens at a gift day. Because ultimately, your time and your money is the biggest mirror that reflects reality back to you. You find out what you care about, what do you give to, what do you spend your time on? Right there. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. What do those things tell you about your priorities, your passions, the things that you love? And of course, gift day is an opportunity for us to say, I am not a consumer of religious goods and services. I am a participant of a family that can do more together than we can apart. That's what happens at a gift day. And when we give our money at the end, it's that seed of sowing something in that is bigger than ourselves. And God really does care about our unity. He cares about our togetherness. And Paul, as he begins to talk to the Ephesians in chapter four, he begins to address this issue of our unity together in the spirit. And so let's just look at some of the key ingredients that he talks about in this passage. Firstly, he begins to talk about the practices of unity. Verse one of chapter four. As a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The, the core instruction in this first part of the passage is Paul saying, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. In other words, he's saying a great wedding does not make a great marriage. God has joined you together, but now you have to make every effort to work about that unity, to invest in that unity. Do you understand that unity is both divine design, but daily decision? I've discovered through the years a few things as a husband to a wife, that our unity is more than just the vows that we made on our wedding day. There is something about my behaviour that can either minimise our unity or cause our unity to flourish. When I leave my socks and dirty underpants on the floor, it creates disharmony, disunity. These, these things I've discovered through the years actually create the opposite of unity. But actually just simple things like saying thank you, like washing the dishes, like putting the toilet seat down after you've gone to the loo. These small things actually make a big difference. They are the practices of unity. We are joined together, but daily I'm making decisions to reinforce what has already happened. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying God has done something. He has joined you together as a people. Now make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And of course, part of the reason for this is that Paul knew, as we probably do, that the enemy of our souls has one very, very simple strategy that he employs time and time again. And it's this, divide and conquer. You know, a very, very simple enemy strategy, whether it's in your marriage or your friendships, whether it's between north and south, whether it's between people of different accents, whether it's between people of different colours or nations, people of different kind of economic backgrounds, different sides of the town. The enemy's strategy is very simple, just divide and conquer, because he knows that when he can divide, he can control. When division becomes the narrative, actually the enemy wins the upper hand. The reason the enemy particularly goes after our unity is because where we are united, God commands a blessing. 
Psalm 133 says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard. If you have a beard here, just stroke your beard at this point. It's running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the Mount of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Where there's unity, God commands a blessing. You know, it says of the early church in Acts 4 that they were of one heart and one soul. No wonder there is such blessing in the pages of the early church. One heart, one soul. And again, as we give today, it's an expression of, we're not just a random collection of people, but we have been joined. One heart, one soul. This is our family. I care about this place. I care about the chair you're sitting on and the coffee that's served and the person who's parking your car and the kids workers who are serving your children. I care about where God's called you to be an influence. I care because this is my family. And you always invest in family. Where there's unity, God commands a blessing. You know, and I would suggest to you that giving is more than just a money moment. Giving is a shifting principalities and powers moment. When you give, you're saying... We are united. We are one. We are one people. You're making me work hard this morning. And Paul here begins to list very simple practices of unity. The the things that we can do that enforce our togetherness, our unity. Here's a great list of them. He says, be humble and gentle, patient and bearing with one another in love. And that we are to make every effort. Okay, if you were making a unity pie, these would be the ingredients. Okay, so let's just look at the first one and maybe ask yourself, which one of these practices do I want to grow in this year? Firstly, humility. Humility. Someone once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So how do you create unity in the church? Actually, you adopt this attitude of, I am not going to be a master, I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to be someone who lays his life down for others. I'm going to be someone who actually puts other people's needs, shock horror, before my own. How you doing on that one? Yeah. I'm going to put somebody else's needs before my own. I, I'm actually going to listen to you before I want you to listen to me. I'm going to not interrupt you when you're talking to me, but I'm actually going to just wait it out and hear what you have to say. I'm actually going to adopt the attitude of humility, of coming under, of saying, how can I bless you? C.S. Lewis once said this, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Just listen to that. Scripture says God opposes the proud. It's one of the most strong verses about who God opposes in Scripture. God opposes the proud. He goes on to say, A proud man or woman is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Pride is self-interest. Pride is feeding self. But humility is saying, I'm going to take on the nature of a servant. You know, the guys who park our cars on a rainy Sunday morning, right there, that's a picture of humility in action. (laughs) Men and women who are saying, I'm giving my free time to park your car in the rain. You're welcome. (laughs) That's humility right there. You know, when we kind of bustle off at the end and we kind of leave our chairs, there's, there's certain people that will just stay a little bit longer to walk along the roads and pick up my rubbish, your rubbish. That's a picture of humility. You know, the people who wash dishes in the kitchen that aren't their own. 
It's a picture of humility. It's a picture of servanthood, of not having self at the centre. Patience is another virtue of unity, says Paul. And here's a great definition of patience, which slapped me around the face. It said this, the ability or willingness to suppress restlessness or annoyance when confronted with delay, provocation, misfortune or pain. (laughs) I think I know which one I need to grow in this year. And it's this one right here. Suppressing restlessness or annoyance when confronted with delay, provocation, misfortune or pain. Patience creates unity. Impatience destroys it. And actually it takes more faith to be patient than it does to be full of activity. Do you know, I forget all the statistics on how long you have to sleep in your life, but it's something like a third of your life you spend asleep. Isn't that amazing? That God has wired it into the DNA of every human being that you just have to trust God to keep you alive while you sleep for a third of your life. (laughs) You know, it's built into the human system that we're called to wait, to be patient, to operate from that place. Um, I recently joined the gym along with about two thirds of this church because I see you there when I go. And, uh, you know, I've I've, I've gone six times so far to the gym. You can probably tell actually. I know you were thinking that before I mentioned it, but I've been six times to the gym and, uh, you know, I've been pumping iron. I've been going with uh, my son and my daughter. And uh, to be honest, I'm quite disappointed I haven't seen better results yet. I mean, I've been six times, six whole times. That's a lot. You know, and yesterday I was in the gym and there was this guy, I swear he's twice, twice as old as I was. And he was like Spider-Man on steroids. He was like, you know, he was on those gymnastics rings and he was holding himself like parallel to the ground and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, how are you doing that? I've been here six times and I can't do that yet. What's going on? It's so unfair. And, uh, you know, uh, Sim sometimes comes to the gym with us. I look at the size of Sim's muscles and I think, Lord, give me muscles like that. Lord, please. But, you know, here's the thing with going to the gym. It takes patience. It takes perseverance. It it, it takes just having an attitude, not just of exerting strength, but also resting. You only grow muscle if you exert and rest. It takes both. And Paul's saying, listen, here's how you create unity in the body of Christ. You are patient with one another. You know, what happens when something irritates you? Are you the person that just speaks before they think? Just take a moment just to step back and say, how can I create unity through patience? Next, Paul says love. Again, one definition of love is to sacrificially give of yourself for the sake of others. Love that definition of love. (laughs) Love equals sacrifice. Again, you sacrifice for what you love. Paul's saying love one another. Sacrifice for one another. Give of yourself. Again, that's exactly why gift days are beautiful moments because we're getting to say, I'm sacrificing something of myself for the sake of others. Giving is an act of love. Giving is an act of saying, you're important to me. And I might never be involved in your area of life or your area of calling. I may never go and plant a church in the Islamic world or I may never go on the streets and serve the poor in the way you do, but I'm giving something of myself. I'm sacrificing something of me so that you could flourish. That's love. How are you doing on love? And then lastly, Paul says, make every effort. Again, it's giving your best for the sake of a purpose bigger than yourself. Again, I think a great question to ask yourself is, am I making every effort? You know, it could be simple things like saying thank you. 
Are you making every effort to say thanks? Like, just think about your home life. You know, whoever's going to cook dinner today, they should receive the biggest thank you from you that they've ever received. But you know what? That really is a minimum requirement, isn't it? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And ultimately, where you don't find thank yous, you find an entitlement culture. You know, just when you walk past the sound guys and the visuals guys and Phil is doing the video today, just, just, just walk by and high five them and just say, thank you. Thank you for serving us. When was the last time you did that? You know, when you pick your children up, you know, rather than thinking I'm entitled to childcare on a Sunday morning, walk up to the kids' work and say, thank you for training my son. Thank you for training my daughter. Thank you for giving your time to do this. Thank you. When was the last time you did that? If you didn't, then my friends, you've got entitled. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Put on thankfulness. These are the practices of unity. And then Paul carries on. He says, here's the second thing about unity in the church, that ultimately unity flows from the person of God himself. This is what we read next in the passage. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you get the key message of that particular passage? One. There is one God, one Lord, one God and Father of all, one spirit. And what Paul is saying here is the reason that you should be concerned about unity is because your life is patterned on who God is and what God is like. You know, the start of your Bibles is a really brilliant clue for you as to how you should live life. In the beginning, okay, let's try that again. In the beginning, God. So God himself is the blueprint for your life. Who he is, is who you are called to be. He is the pattern for our life. And earlier in this passage, we read that Paul says, would you keep the unity of the Spirit? Now notice that he does not say, keep the unity of agreement. Keep the unity of personalities that always agree with one another. Keep the unity of you all looking the same and sounding the same. He doesn't say that. He says, your unity is in the Spirit. That's really important. Jesus, when he prays in John 17, he says, Father, as I am in you and you are in me, may they be one as we are one. What Jesus was praying in that moment was not that his people would agree together more and more as they get more mature. That's not what Jesus is praying. He's saying, I pray that they would be one with you as I am one with you. So just quick demonstration, Matt, I'm going to need you for this, I'm afraid. If you could just come over to th- just this side of the stage, just down on the floor, just over there. And, uh, and, and PJ, uh, if you could just come and stand over this side. And I want you to imagine that Wendy is God. Wendy, just, just stand up just for a moment. Now, that's actually not hard to imagine because Wendy is amazing. It was her birthday yesterday as well. So I know, I know. Presents and checks would be grateful, wouldn't they? Yeah, okay, gratefully received. So Wendy, Wendy is God. And Jesus prays, Father, may they be one as we are one. And here's the thing, PJ and Matt, they've got a lot of disagreements, actually. There's a lot of things they don't agree about. They're from different sides of the track. One of them's from the north, one of them's from the south. They've got very different backgrounds. They've got very different things they care about. There's even some doctrinal things that they disagree on. You know, and you can see they're quite a long way away from each other. Now, what does unity in the spirit look like? Does it look like PJ walking across the room to Matt? No. What it looks like is for both of these guys to start walking towards Jesus. 
you notice what happens as they prioritise walking towards Jesus. There you go. There you go. That's brilliant. So here's, here's what spiritual unity looks like. As you prioritise walking with Jesus, suddenly you look over your shoulder and you realise you're closer to your brother, you're closer to your sister. Because your unity is in the spirit. You are one with God. And you cannot pursue God without learning to forgive your brother and forgive your sister. You cannot pursue God without having to clothe yourself with love. You cannot pursue God without having to clothe your life in humility and patience for one another. You cannot be like Jesus and actually not love your brother and sister. But the focus is your oneness with him. Unity is an act of both worship and imitation. It's saying we are one, Father, because you are one. There's this beautiful theological principle called the indivisibility of God. That's your big kind of theological thing for the morning. The indivisibility of God, which simply means this. We worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now just wave at me if you perfectly understand the Trinity. Wow, that's amazing. That's good. If you perfectly understand the Trinity, please see me afterwards and explain it to me. You understand that God is meant to be bigger than your ability to define him. It's okay for some things to be mysterious about God. But what we know about God is that he is one and his, his, he is completely indivisible from himself. And this matters for our relationships to one another. Here's what Kevin DeYoung says about that. He says, the Trinity matters for our relationships. We worship a God who is in constant and eternal relationship with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Community is a buzzword in today's culture, but it is only in a Christian framework that communion and interpersonal community are seen as expressions of the eternal nature of God. Likewise, it is only with a Trinitarian God that love can be an eternal attribute of God. Without a plurality of persons in the Godhead, we would be forced to think that God created humans so that he might show love and know love, thereby making love a created thing and God a needy deity. But with a biblical understanding of the Trinity, we can say that God did not create in order to be loved, but rather created out of the overflow of the perfect love that had always existed among Father, Son and Holy Spirit, who ever live in perfect and mutual relationship and delight. Do you see? God is the blueprint. God is the pattern. In the beginning, God. Why does your unity matter? Why does our giving and unity matter in a moment? It matters because when we give and when we're united, we declare something to the principalities and powers. This is what our God is like. He is one. Money is not my God. Fame is not my God. Status is not my God. The nuclear family is not my God. The perfect holiday in the Bahamas is not my God. There's only one God, and his name is Jesus. Next, and lastly, Paul begins to talk about people gifts that help bring unity to the church. This is what we read in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And then this this little kind of parenthesis for two verses. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So... 
Christ gave himself, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What an amazing passage. And Paul here is using this imagery of a victorious general who is walking in triumph And as he does, he is just distributing gifts as he walks. And the idea here is that Jesus has ascended to the throne in victory. And in his ascension, he distributed gifts to men and women. That's the picture going on in this passage. But notice the context for the giving of our gifts and the using of our gifts in verse 10. It says that God gives gifts as part of his plan to fill the whole universe. Peter O'Brien says this, Having achieved dominion over all the powers through his victorious ascent, he sovereignly distributes gifts to the members of his body. The building of the body is inextricably linked with his intention of filling the universe with his rule since the church is his instrument in carrying his purposes for the cosmos. Do you understand that when you use the gifts that God's given you, you are helping Jesus fill the universe with his glory? (laughs) <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Like, and you, you may be sitting here thinking, well, I don't feel particularly gifted. I'm not sure what my talents are. You know, I, I, just, this, I just do this thing over here. And how does that help? Well, Scripture says you're helping Jesus fill the whole universe when you use your gifts to the glory of God. You're contributing something which glorifies Christ. You know, there's, uh, my, it was my birthday a little while ago and uh, my wife had arranged for a friend to make me a lemon meringue pie. And when she knocked on the door and I opened the door and I saw a homemade lamb and meringue pie, the universe filled with the glory of God. (laughs) And I felt it tangibly. (laughs) What's happening? When you use the gifts God's given you, it spreads the glory of Christ. You know, when my friends drew that picture of a church building in Paris, it was just using his gift, but it contributed to Christ filling the universe with his glory. There's different things we see about gifts in this passage. Firstly, we read that we each have them. It says, now to each one, grace has been given. None of you are left out. Just nudge someone next to you and say, you are incredibly gifted. How do you know what your gifts are? Well, two things. Ask two questions. What are you fruitful at doing? And what do you enjoy doing? If you answer those two questions, you'll probably find what your talents and your gifts and your strengths are. What are you fruitful at and what do you enjoy doing? Your gifts will not be far behind the corner of that question. And again, this year, as we're giving in a moment, we are giving into this idea that this year we want to see a massive multiplication of gifting right across the church. People were using their gifts to the glory of God. None of us left out. Secondly, we read this, that they are gifts of God's grace. In other words... When Christ distributed gifts, they weren't rewards for good behaviour. Have you met anyone who was incredibly gifted, but they had lousy character? Anyone met anyone like that? Anyone been that person? I've been that person, you know? And that's because when God gives gifts, he just gives them because he's kind, because he's a good father. You know, unless you're Scrooge and you give your children lumps of coal for poor behaviour during the year, most of us as mothers and fathers will give gifts to our children just because it's an expression of love. 
And that's how gifts are from God's perspective. He just gives gifts. He's like, oh, I really love you. You're gifted in this. Oh, I love you. I'm going to give you that gift. Oh, I love you. I'm going to give you that gift. And it's not because you've done well. It's just because he's kind. They're gifts of his grace. But notice that while gifts are free, maturity is expensive. And the most influential men and women in the world are those who've learned the art of character development. That is the branch that supports the fruit. You have too much fruit and not enough branch, you're going to get in trouble. (laughs) That's why Jesus says, actually, I come and prune every branch that bears fruit so it becomes even more fruitful. What's he talking about? Character. (laughs) I think it was Norman Schwarzkopf, the uh, uh, ex-US Army commander, who said, military strategy is about, uh, military advance is about strategy and character. But if you must do without one, do without the strategy. (laughs) It's about character development but the gifts are free. And then thirdly, we know this about the gifts, that the gifts that God gives in this passage, Paul specifically goes on to talk about them being people gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, in Scripture, there are two different types of gift lists in the Bible. Uh, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 are two of the gift lists, and also Ephesians 4 is one of the gift lists. I want to suggest to you that when Paul talks about gifts, he's talking about two different types of gifts. So in 1 Corinthians 12, he begins to list these different gifts that we operate in as believers. So prophecy and healing and administration and faith and speaking in other languages and discernment and all these beautiful gifts. Now, I want to suggest to you that those are activity gifts. Paul says that they are gifts of the Spirit. And actually, they are gifts that we can all move in. If you are a spirit-filled believer, you can move in the gifts of the Spirit. You might say, well, I'm not sure I can prophesy. Wrong, of course you can. I'm not sure I can pray for anyone to be healed. No, of course you can. They're gifts of the Holy Spirit that He gives. They're activity gifts. They're things that we do. But here in Ephesians 4, Paul says, these are gifts of the ascended Christ. And they're not doing gifts, They are people gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And Paul is saying here that in the church, God appoints certain gifts to help build and equip his people. Now, note that it's Christ who apportions these gifts. You don't go to university and come out with an apostle certificate. You know, you don't go to a training school and come out saying, I am now a prophet of the Lord. That's not how it works. Paul says it's Christ who apportions these gifts in the body of Christ. And we could talk about each of these gifts in in length, but let's just take a quick snapshot. Apostles, what do they do? Apostles are particularly gifted to create and transform culture. Their goal is to bring heaven to earth and they are gifted by God to build blueprints that actually get built. I'll suggest to you that Simon, he's an apostle. He carries an apostolic mandate from God that we are helping to build. Prophets, their particular concern is about how you seek and communicate God's will. I like to think of prophets as the divine telephone engineers of the church. You understand, if you invite a telephone engineer into your house, you don't expect him to do all the talking on your telephone. That's not what prophets do. Prophets come into your home, put the equipment in your own home so that you can talk to Jesus and hear him as well. They equip, they enable, they empower. They don't do all the talking. You've got prophets in this church, you may not rarely hear their voice, but they are equipping God's work, God's people to do works of service. 
evangelists. Their particular concern is around winning and recruiting to Christ's mission. Their concern is how can we introduce as many people to Jesus as we possibly can? And how can we make the church as outward looking as we possibly can? I cannot be with someone like Steve Wilson and not come out with more of a passion for the lost than when I went in. And it's not because he said anything or done anything. It's just because of who he is. He's a gift to us. Pastors. Pastors particularly nurture and protect community. Again, pastors are gifted to build family, build togetherness. Pastoring in scripture is not tea and sympathy. Sometimes we need tea and sympathy, but it's not just that. Pastoring in scripture is about protecting the family, about making strong disciples, about releasing people into their calling in God and dealing with the stuff that gets in the way. That's pastoring in scripture. It's a deployment word. And then there's teachers who are those that particularly have a concern for the Word of God and making sure that our roots are deep in the Bible, deep in the words of Scripture. And Paul says you need all five of these gifts working in the body of Christ to create unity. Notice the impact of these ministry gifts. There's four of them. Number one, we get built up. Number two, we reach unity in the faith. Number three, we get to know God more. And number four, we become mature so that we look like Jesus. This, says Paul, is the recipe for unity in the church. Number one, put on the practices of unity. Be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Love. Secondly, understand that there is one God and Father. He is the blueprint. When you come together as one body, you're glorifying what God is like. And thirdly, God gives gifts so that the church might be built together in unity. That's what Paul is teaching in this passage. Let's stand together, shall we?